you know, when I think about this market, the first and most important thing to move into value, which is really what we want, because what we're saying today is we're not getting the value for the money we're paying <laughs> and, and for, for prescription drugs. We have to rationalize that. You're not going to rationalize that unless you have transparency, right? If I don't, we, you can't say, you know, uh, is this cost reasonable or not? Unless you know the cost. And so we're, we, you know, we think we're on the tip of a very big spear. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast about the entrepreneurs shaping the future of health and the health moonshots they're working to achieve. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. So for a long, long time, seemingly forever, the price that you have to pay at the counter for your prescription drugs has been in a black box. The drug maker, the insurer, the pharmacy, they've all got their fingers in this price, making it seemingly unknowable. That was until some entrepreneurs took the problem on. With the recent IPO of GoodRx, the prescription discount platform now valued at more than $20 billion, it feels like the issue of drug price transparency is finally having its moment. So while GoodRx focused on giving patients tools for comparing drug prices, the company Rx Review has been working for seven years since before pharmacy tech was cool to bring that price transparency directly to doctors writing prescriptions. Doctors know in general that prescribing generics will cost less than a name brand drug, but that's been about it. Today's episode is a conversation with Carm Huntress, CEO of RX Review. We'll talk about the logistical challenges that kept drug price transparency at bay for so long. We'll take a look at pharmacy tech over the last decade. We'll look at how the markets have shifted during COVID. And then we'll look forward at where this is all leading, how drug price transparency is essential to both the access to care and the cost of zero moonshots. Hope you enjoy. Carm Huntress, thank you for joining me today um, for this episode. Really excited to have you um, and to learn more about what Rx Review is doing right now. So thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. Real pleasure to be on and uh, long time uh, startup health company. So we've yeah. been around. Yeah, I want to get into that history a little bit because in kind of watching some of your material, your presentations, they go back to 2013, 2014. And so I thought as a way of framing the challenge that you're trying to address, kind of what was broken that caused uh, the need for RX Review, maybe you could like tell us about how prescription uh, transparency and the issues you're dealing with have changed over the last six, seven years since you started. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that are different and a lot of things that are the same. I was wondering, um, yes. You know, so I think I'd start off by saying, you know, how we started and it's, it's interesting. I just had my company meeting and we, we have this thing we call the Lucy up award. Uh, and we what was it again? Out, the Lucy up award. Okay. Um, and we give it out every month and our founder, Dr. Kevin O'Brien um, was the one who came to me and said, Hey, I think there's, you know, I want to start a company around this idea of cost transparency and helping patients save money. Well, he started because his mother's name is Lucy. And he, he, as a doctor, kind of looked at all her expensive medications and um, very quickly recognized, oh, I, I can save you about $400 here by just changing some of your meds. And he said, geez, I bet there's a lot of other people in this same boat. Yeah. Um, and so we've coined this phrase, you know, Lucy up, you know, help Lucy, you know, save mm. money on her medication, get transparency. You know, we're all patients. We're all trying to help our, our, our mothers, our parents, our friends. Mm, yeah. Uh, 
especially in this environment. And so we have this Lucy Up Award that kind of goes back to that founding story of, of why we're here. I think what's so interesting, right, is when we, when we started seven, you know, let's say 2013, if you look at the market then, you know, GoodRx was just kind of coming to fruition, like it had a little bit of visibility in the market. It was still a relatively small company. Um, the tech and and so not a lot of movement right in pharmacy IT um, and and let, and we'll compare that to the Delta in a minute and then really the technology right in terms of or EHR maturity to take on cost transparency the concept of cost transparency like can I know how much my drugs going to cost when I reach the pharmacy that idea yeah. Yeah. was both from a technology and sort of a conceptual idea was still really immature fast forward today okay wow you know, this is one of the hottest sectors out there, right? Yeah. If you look at what's gone, what's happened, you've got um, uh, startups incumbents, especially on the on the fulfillment side. So, Hims, uh, you know, Roman, Nurex, True Pill, Amazon Pill Pack, Capsule, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy busy, and there's a lot of money flooding into tackle it. Yeah. You've also seen this massive consolidation, right? You've got Aetna, CVS. You've got Cigna and Express Scripts, and you've got United and Optum. All, you know, and those are two new mergers, um, United and, and I are existing, but those are the big players, and they own, you know, 80, 90% of the market. Okay. Um, and so a real big change there. Um, and then on the pharmacy IT side, you know, we have a standard now, which is called real-time benefit check, which allows us, which is the core thing our business done, which is transact with the payers and PBMs like the Express Scripts or, or, or Optum okay. to get the real-time cost for the patient of what they're going to pay for the drug. At the moment, the prescriber's writing or entering the prescription into the electronic health record. And so we've seen great maturity of the electronic health record in taking on this data at scale, and that's driven a lot of our scale, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and, and number two, we've seen the payer PBMs mature around being able to run these types of transactions and then make make them available at very large scales um, for both uh, you know providers and patients. Interesting. Uh, I want to get more into kind of what that market activity has meant for you and kind of what 2020s looked like. But in for anyone watching this that um, needs kind of a flyover of what you've built there at RX Review, sort of give me the uh, elevator pitch. Yeah, sure. So we're we consider us kind of the leading independent cost transparency uh, uh, vendor in the market today. Uh, focus primarily on prescription drugs. We're starting to do transparency in other spaces, um, which, which we can talk about. Our core business is really in drug cost transparency. Mm -hmm. And so related to doing this at the point of care, and we, we had to make some hard decisions on the way getting here to this point as a company to focus primarily on helping providers around this. And the reason for that is, you know, we, we kind of said, well, you know, who really controls the prescription decision? Mm -hmm. And it really is your doctor. And, and we really look at the transparency movement as the, if we're going to make a delta change uh, in the overall prescription drug market and bring down costs, we've got to get transparency to providers. So we're now, our network is um, uh, approaching 150,000 doctors, probably going to go to 200,000 in the next uh, six months. Um, and we were at like a few thousand at the beginning of last year. Delta change. Wow. Okay. Um, and we, we probably did about a million transactions last year. Maybe um, we'll do probably close to thirty million this year. What, what was uh, the? What's been the driver? How, how would you describe yeah. the drivers of that change? 
Well, it's two really big things. One, the EHRs have really started to adopt this standard, but they need companies like us that connect to all the payers and PBMs and aggregate the data together and then provide it. So any doctor seeing any patient on any health plan can, can get the data they need, right? To, to know what the price is that patient's gonna pay at the point of care. So we bring that transparency to the EHRs and we're doing that with Epic uh, and Cerner at scale now. And I'm happy to announce that we just signed Athena Health. So we have now the three largest ambulatory EHRs in the US working with us um, and bringing this data to the point of care. So um, is that a tech challenge? Is that an interoperability challenge? Like, <laughs> what is it that makes it so difficult to get? Or is it just a bureaucratic challenge? Uh, well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's bureaucratic in that there's a lot of other challenge, you know, other things like COVID and <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, regulation that, that the EHRs especially are trying to meet. Um, it's two-sided challenge, right? We, we've had to work a lot with our EHR partners to get them to adopt these standards and make it available. So the provider can see what the cost is. Are there any restrictions? Um, what are the therapeutic alternatives to the drug that might save the patient money and do that all in real time? And then maturing the, the payers and PBMs to be able to run these transactions at scale in real time and normalize all that data across these very arcane systems. Um, you know, these systems we're, we're tapping into claim systems, which are very antiquated. Some are mainframe based systems. Some you have to look at multiple systems to, to, to pull together a complete transaction. So you'll have sort of a claim system that'll give you the pricing, but then you have like a coverage system that'll tell you if a PA or quantity limit is on the drug. You have to kind of do a lot of navigating of really complex systems. Um, we do have a really phenomenal engineering team um, that, that figures out all this stuff and is constantly maturing uh, our success rates. We're, you know, 93%, which is probably the highest success rate in the industry now uh, in terms of perform and both performance were sub two second, uh, sub, sub one second in some cases um, in terms of getting these transactions to the point of care. Okay. When you say successful at getting the transaction to the point of care, what does that mean? The, the, it didn't air out um, okay. um, that, you know, we had, we made a, the doctor said, Hey, I want to prescribe Humira. Let's just take an example. We get that request out of the EHR. We normalize that for a payer PBM. We, we say, oh, this is a United member. Okay, let's go over to your Optum. We then clean up that transaction and make sure it's well formed. And it, you know, and then we request all the data and then it comes back and then we know we can send it back to the EHR and the doctor's gonna see what they wanna see, which is the price of the drug and this yeah. other information. So we really have to ensure uh, that that runs really well and that you get that success rate. And these are very, meaty transactions, you know, sure. you're passing around, you know, drug data and dosaging and quantities and, um, you know, because you're, you're literally saying, what is that patient going to pay at their preferred pharmacy that day at their mm. CVS or Walgreens or whatever it may be. So it's, it's a really hard thing to do well at scale, you know, where we're running millions of these transactions on a monthly basis. Interesting. You know, something that we've written about, um, or at least in my work, I've written about for years is the issue of perverse incentives. I and mean, in healthcare, people kind of, their incentives aren't aligned and working against one another. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there are pieces of the healthcare system that would benefit from people paying more for their drugs, and you're coming in and helping them. So kind of where does Rx Review uh, fit into aligning people's incentives? Well, I think I, I think you gotta 
you know, when I think about this market, the first and most important thing to move into value, which is really what we want, because what we're saying today is we're not getting the value for the money we're paying <laughs> and, and for, for prescription drugs. We have to rationalize that. You're not going to rationalize that unless you have transparency, right? If I don't, you can't say, you know, uh, is this cost reasonable or not? Unless you know the cost. Yeah. And so we, you know, we think we're on the tip of a very big spear that's going to start to sort of have this value-based discussion. Um, and it's exciting because, you know, we're starting to talk to some of our partners around, I mean, not only talking about patient costs, but what, what is the plan going to pay? And what's that total cost of care for the drug? Which when you think that about from a provider perspective and taking on risk, that's a pretty important number to know. And to know it in real time when you're prescribing the drug is definitely going to help uh, lean into value. Um, and, and that's really the first step. Um, beyond that, you start to say, well, how well did the drug work and look at clinical data and clinical outcomes and then sort of say, well, for what I paid and I, the clinical outcome I got, does it all make sense? And so we think we're just really on this sort of the first phase that really needs to happen and get the market going into value is make everything transparent and well understood of what people are going to pay. Uh, and then we can really start to think about value. Um, and, what and is it really, what's really worth doing? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting to think that this piece that is so complicated and you've worked so hard on is still just this tip of the iceberg, tip of the spear, whatever your metaphor is. Yeah, a, a lot of people say, you know, you know I, I still get this question um, and I got it even early back in 2013. It's like, you know, this hasn't been done. You know, like how, how can, doc, <laughs> how are doctors prescribing drugs today if they don't need right. the cost, right? Um, and, uh, you know, not only back then and, and still goes on today, you know, a lot of that data that they were getting was actually inaccurate. It was static data that was kind of getting passed around. It wasn't yeah. real time. And, yeah. and so, you know, it, it was the worst of the worst, which is not even is this, they, they are getting data, but it's actually the wrong data. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we've had to do a lot to, to course correct. And I, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people are trying trying to do a lot of sexy things in healthcare right now. And I, I don't really look at it that way. I think we need really simplistic solutions to a lot of these challenges. And transparency is just one of those. I mean, you know, I, I don't face this as much because we've, we've had success as a company. We've gotten to a lot of scale and our, our revenues are growing really fast now. But early on, you know, I had a lot of investors say, where's your, AI, you know, where's your AI pitch? And I just say, you know, this isn't, that's not what doctors need. AI is, is you know, six iterations of this thing, right? It's a much further thing out there because guess what? The AI can't intelligently tell you what the best cost, you know, cost basis drug would be for a patient without knowing the cost. So let's solve that problem first. Yeah, you get one response from the investor who says, where's the AI pitch? And then every single one of the what 1.5 million provider or doctors says, please, I need this yesterday. Yeah, you know, like, anyone, the cost of the drug. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I just want to know what I'm sending you home with, you know, every doctor I know um, wants to help their their patient get the, the best drug for the best price. It's just, yep. just it's that simple. easy, right? Which which leads me to a question. You know, I saw you in a presentation you made online. Um, I saw you connect the dots between uh, being able to present the best drug at the best price with physician burnout. You know, and it's easy just to have the story stop with the patient. Like, I'm glad they saved some money. But to go upstream and to connect those dots and say, this really impacts um, provider or physician well-being. 
Um, I'd love for you to sort of uh, expound on that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, we've done, this is the odd thing about healthcare IT, right? Every other time we've introduced technology to an industry, we've seen a massive gains in uh, improved outcomes, you know, better, you know, cost for value makes sense, right? Um, in every industry, healthcare has not achieved that. The inverse has happened. We've introduced technology and things have gotten much more complex. Um, and these systems were really built, you know, in a, a much, you know, sort of earlier uh, iteration of, of IT and weren't really built with the, you know, they were built at least on the provider side uh, with a focus on revenue cycle management. They weren't focused on user experience. And so you hear these kind of crazy statistics like an ER shift, a normal ER doc clicks like 4,000 times in a shift. Um, you know, it's like an insane <laughs> sort of thought of like, you know, just to get through an eight hour, you know, they're facing that much clicking around the EHR and that's not even keyboard time. That's just mouse clicks. My, my father is an ER physician and I've, I've shadowed him on shifts just to sort of see what that's like. And uh, yeah. besides the clicking around, just the sort of sitting at a desk charting for forever, a right? long time, long time. And so you know, the first that and, and that is such a mass, massive contribution to what's happening to doctors, right? Is this just massive documentation that the overhead they have to work at night and get everything documented correctly? The HRs are kind of stopping them and hard stop alerting them all day. I mean, if, if, if you used a computer like an EHR where, you know, every minute or so you get an alert in your face, you'd burn out, you know, and that's mm -hmm. massive contribution. And so about a lot and I love this phrase um, which I got from one of my board members which is a informed autonomy is what we want is these systems that are kind of monitoring behind the scenes and assessing the information and bubbling up to the doctor here's your best options whether that be in diagnosis support where it's sort of saying hey I'm sort of supporting you and kind of sorting out the differential and what the diagnosis is here and then here's the treatment options that are best for you and what we've done in prescribing is we've expected way too much out of the doctor. Um, I, I always bring up this example. If you have a type two uh, hypertensive, um, let's say diabetic in front of you, there's something our data scientists did this calculation is 1.3 trillion drug options, 1.3 trillion drug options in front of that doctor in that moment, right? And they're trying to pick three meds for that type of doc patient, which is very common patient. You know, that's not something out of the norm. And, and so, you know, if you think about the clinical complexity we've forced providers into, the amount of knowledge they have to retain and understand, let's just take the cost issues out of it just from a clinical perspective. And then this sort of very hard choice of, you know, what's the insurance and what you're gonna pay. It's not really a human computational thing, right? It's humans should just not do that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really my belief in that we're kind of building componentizing and putting all the pieces together to create a system that drives informed autonomy and helps that doctor get to a small set of options. And they can assess, hey, is this gonna to be too expensive? Um, are there clinical concerns here? How am I being that empathetic partner to the patient understanding the social things that technology is kind of not so great at to guide to the right prescription decision? And that really is the future I believe in. And I think that's where technology should help. And if we do it right, the burnout issues will go away. I mean, how yeah. cool would it be to a doctor if you have sort of these AI engines around you yeah. supporting in the diagnosis and treatment 
and they're more complementary to you and get you back to why you became a doctor in the first place, which yeah. is to be the empathetic, sit by, you know, hold the patient's hand and talk about their condition and how we treat them and make them healthier. Like that's, that's a great future. Um, and, and I really hope we can be part of that in our studio. Is the clinical decision support portion of this, is that part of the current product or is that your future vision? Um, it's interesting. We, we had early technology that we developed in some specific clinical areas around that. I think it's going to, you know, and we still have that sort of on the shelf. Um, I think we're going to full circle here. <laughs> I think we're going to do this thing where we kind of go out as a company, solve the cost transparency issues, and then start to come back and look at clinical uh, efficacy. Because what you want, right, is I want to, you know, get the most clinically effective drug at a at a cost and convenience to the patient, you know, that they ultimately can afford. That's sure. kind of what you're trying to sort out. And so I think we're sort we're in this sort of we're figuring out the cost and convenience categories, right? What's what's sort of the right cost for you and what's convenient, you know, for you to, in terms of time, you know, driving from your home. Should we mail order it? If it's specialty, do we need to do a home infusion? Do we need to do it um, on site? Um, you know, that those are the cost and convenience things. And then starting to sort of say, what's the clinical efficacy here? What's the most clinically effective thing that we could we could prescribe. And there is kind of a subset in every condition of, of how you figure that out. But those are, those are really, I, I think what we've learned is we're starting to get there enough with interoperability where you could have CDS tools that in real time could run both of these types of transactions, but we're still kind of early. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that challenge of sort of normalizing the clinical data in a, in a fast enough turn for the doctor to get value out of those types of transactions and two, doing the deciphering. And a really good example is in type 2 diabetes, you've got, you know, the clinical guidelines for that, for just type 2 diabetes, about 157 pages. And I've tried to flip through it myself. I'm not a doctor, obviously. It's overwhelming at page three, yeah. uh, you know, because it's this big kind of um, clinical uh, guidance or flow, flow, you know, diagram of what you do depending on a whole host of factors with the patient. Um, and comorbidities, existing medications, um, you know, combination medications, um, their current A1C, right? All these things compound. And so um, I do think it's a full circle for us, but yeah. again, we've got to look at this as phases um, and providing value along each one of those phases to get to that future state where clinical data is really evaluated alongside these transactions. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned this a little bit at the very beginning, but uh, how did COVID impact your company? Yeah, I mean, so what we saw uh, very clearly was health systems did a, a full hard stop um, pretty much across the country. You know, we have um, roughly 400 systems we're integrated with across the U.S., so we have a very broad reach in terms of seeing. The drop-off was pretty extreme. Um, we saw... I don't know, about a third or half, depending on what market we were in of clinical, you know, prescribing just stopped. Prescri no prescribing stopped. Actual prescribing. Okay. So, yeah, so if, we actually, if patients weren't coming into the clinic, they're just prescriptions weren't getting written. Yeah, exactly. And so we had that hard stop. Now we've seen pretty much that come back and start to grow well. I think what we're going to see, you know, the, what, what, what we saw earlier this year were systems just shut down and, and we had to be super respectful. You know, I just would call up, you know, potential prospects and say, 
how can, you know, what do you need from me today? Do you need to, to cry on my shoulder? Yeah. You need to, you need a, you know, you, you need PPE. What do you need? Um, we, you know, we, we did a bunch of fundraisers to help health systems during that time. We literally just shut down our sales. Um, and it, it really became, how do we help our communities? How do we help our health systems get through this because they're in crisis mode? Um, and, you know, we saw them not only the stress on the employees and the nurses and the clinical staff, but, you know, we were getting phone calls from some of our larger health systems that were, were losing 50 to $100 million a month. Um, you know, that, that, that's the kind of thing that was happening for about six months. Um, we've come out of that. And I think what we're going to see, I don't think we're going to see the same shutdowns going into next year. We're still going to see that distraction cost, though, to health systems in terms of having spikes in cases and having to deal with that. And then IT resources that are tied up in other things. Um, I, you know, we look at it as it's just denying the inevitability of it, right? Like cost transparency will come to these systems. We'll get it to the doctors. We'll keep maturing that market. It just might take longer. Um, and we might've, you know, in some ways, I think it's interesting. We've lost, um, I think we've lost six months to a year in terms of the maturity of that market. But I also think this really wonderful thing happened in that a lot of what we saw was really interesting. We saw the systems that were heavily embedded in elective um, procedures and um, fee-for-service hemorrhage patch. I mean, just hemorrhage money, right? Because all that stopped. And the systems that were more footed in value and had their own health plan, um, what happened, right, is the premiums went up. And, and, you know, nobody utilized any costs. And so their balance sheet was so much healthier and they were much more resilient to COVID. And I think that just really did a wonderful thing to wake up a lot of systems to say, we gotta stop this. We gotta stop the insanity of this fee-for-service world. We've gotta move into value. We've gotta become more resilient. And, and the time is now. And so, and then you look at things like telehealth and they accelerate everybody's, nobody's ever going to use telehealth. Well, turns out everybody uses telehealth. Um, and we've seen systems come back to a healthy, I'd say 25 to 30% uh, utilization of, of telehealth. You know, it's not going to go away and stay at much higher levels. I mean, in a healthy state where you, you know, if you're just doing a follow-up yeah. and there's no reason to be there physically, like telehealth is the best. And I, I've done it twice this year myself and I think it's fantastic. Yeah. So I think that's really what we're going to see um, uh, as systems really have woken up in a, in a healthy way to where they need to go and move into value uh, and, and start to shed some of these old models that, that aren't going to work in the future anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I've seen you give presentations about the company and it's very clear um, that this is very personal to you. Uh, you've been at this for six or seven years. Almost uh, eight. Almost eight. It's a topic that if people aren't in the know, could sound maybe a little dry, you know, prescription price transparency, right? It's like, yeah. um, and yet it's very clear that to you, this is something much bigger and it's personal. So as kind of a closing question, um, why is that? Yeah, so, I mean, my story goes back to my childhood. Um, you know, by, I lost my dad to pancreatic cancer at seven and my mom uh, to uh, colon cancer at 15. And I had to face, um, you know, some really tough stuff as a kid. Um, and I saw firsthand kind of the failing of the medical community um, and care at that time, right, of, of what 
how just terrible this can be. And I, I'll never forget, you know, back in the, you know, my, my mom carrying around all her paper records and just sort of all that stuff. And as I've gotten into technology, just seeing that need and, and understanding how many patients have gone through that suffering. Um, and, you know, we're seeing it so much this year with COVID and, and how many lives have been lost around it. Um, and, you know, I, I have, and so I've always had this sort of like fundamental need to want to be in this space in healthcare, you know, uh, and, and that personal story with my mother and father, it's just carried with me my whole life to sort of like, we got to make healthcare better in this country and make it more, um, you know, more approachable and, um, and it, and, you know, I think the combination of technology will solve so many of these problems everything from, uh, you know, what we do today and bringing cost transparency to the market, but, but also really changing uh, the way we deliver care and really curing people of a lot of these diseases. And so for me, it's just incredibly personal. And, you know, I just, I think it's a, it's a travesty that we live in a world, it's 2020, and we're still having this discussion. You know, it, shouldn't we just fix this stuff? Shouldn't we just make this happen and get on with our lives? And so we can get to the, the next stuff. Uh, the important stuff, the AI stuff, the, the you know, informed autonomy and, and um, uh, all the things that we should be really giving doctors from a technology perspective. Um, and I think the last thing I'll say is just like we live in a world where, you know, medical minus COVID, right, medical errors is the third leading cause of death in this country. That is an absolute, and it's, you know, pushing 20% of our GDP. Um, and I, I have two boys. I can't imagine a world, I can't leave this world um, with them in, in the state it is today. And, and if it gets worse, you know, that's not going to be an answer for me. Yeah. And so that's why I'm so dedicated and I get up every day trying to solve this problem and I'm incredibly committed to it. And the stats around medical bankruptcy are just as, as staggering. Just as staggering. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, we've got COVID issues, right? Forcing a lot of people into, um, a bad financial situation, but you know, it, it, it's, it, it is right up there in terms of the leading cause of bankruptcy in this country. And that is a shame as well. We should be able to create a system that is highly efficient, driven by technology, um, where we can deliver care at an affordable price that delivers the outcomes we want. That, that isn't an impossibility. And the fact that we hold on to that idea um, needs, to, needs to change. Carm, thanks for spending the time to uh, to share with me uh, not just the update, but your your passion as well. I thank you for spending uh, the last seven years on this or more, and appreciate that. I know you're gonna you're gonna stay at it. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, and have a good rest of your day. All right, you too. Be well. Yeah. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 330 companies, go to StartupHealth.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.